Amen. Well, uh, Robert Frost was one of the, the great poets of the 20th century, an American, um, and his most famous work is called The Road Not Taken. I don't know if I'm giving you flashbacks to English lessons at school by mentioning his name, but in that poem, I'm faced with the choice of two paths, the, the speaker takes, or took rather, the road less traveled, the road less traveled. And he tells us in that uh, poem that it made all the difference. And this idea of, of choosing an unlikely way to walk has struck a chord with many people. And the Bible uses similar language to describe our lives. To be a Christian is to walk with God. But it also means to take a a very surprising path. It means walking a road less traveled, we might say. And so as we turn to Isaiah 50 this evening, I want to begin at the end. Begin at the end. In, In verses 10 and 11, if you look down at those verses just now... Uh, Maybe you can see that there are two types of walking contrasted. There is uh, walking with God and walking by ourselves. In verse 10, there are people who fear God and walk in the darkness. That's quite interesting, isn't it? While in verse 11, there are people who light their own fires and are walking all by themselves. Quite a contrast. And by the end of the sermon, my hope is that all of us will see just how important it is uh, to be what we might call verse 10 people. Verse 10 people rather than verse 11 people. But what will help us do that? What will help us um, walk the right way? If we're Christians, it's what we want, isn't it? Maybe especially at the the beginning of a new year. Um, Is it just a matter of trying harder? Um, Does God want us to just be extra zealous this year and extra committed? Um, Are there new standards we, we better start keeping or people we've got to impress? Or does the passage itself show us another way. I think it does. Um, On four occasions in in the second half of Isaiah, uh, there's a figure um, who starts to appear in the shadows. And we see him in chapter 42, chapter 49. We see him in our passage. And most famously of all, we see him in Isaiah chapter 53. And taken together, these four passages in Isaiah, they're often known as the servant songs. And each one is a a kind of picture in advance of Jesus. And so if we, if verses 10 to 11 are, are a call to walk with God, then verses 4 to 9 are God's way of keeping us doing that. And rather than simply giving us lots of instructions and lots of things that no doubt we would feel guilty about, God has given us a portrait of Jesus to make us long 
to stay close to him. I read recently that being a preacher is like, um, it's a bit like uh, being in an art gallery or being a guide in an art gallery. There's two big bits of art work up there. Um, but I guess my job in some ways is to show you some of the, the beautiful things in God's word. That's part of it at least, isn't it? So let's look at this portrait of Jesus in verses 4 to 9 from three different angles. And God keeps us close by showing us first verses 4 and 5, an obedient pupil, or we might say an obedient um, follower. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. In these verses, God's servant, he describes himself as one who's been taught. He has open ears to hear God's word and he has an open mouth to pass that word on. And although he's learned it's not uh, taken place in uh, a stuffy classroom on a rainy Tuesday afternoon, instead he's learned from a personal tutor, the Lord himself, the Lord God himself, verse 4. It's very clear they've got an incredibly close relationship. And I think of what we're getting a, a bit of a hint of here is um, something we don't always think about that often. It is the communion between Jesus and his Father. And there are many places in the New Testament that we could go to illustrate it. In Luke chapter 2, after getting lost and then found in the temple, we read how Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature as he went from boyhood to manhood. And in John chapter 8, verse 28, he says, I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Now, we might have questions about all of this, uh, Jesus growing from boyhood to manhood um, and doing the will of the Father and all kinds of other questions we might have. We can speak about them afterwards. But notice, though, notice the purpose of his education. In verse 4, can you see the end result of it? The end result of his education. The Lord God taught him that he might sustain with a word the one who is weary. So as God instructs his servant, it is the weary man or woman he has in view. And I think that is so moving God's heart towards a weary person, a weary follower of Jesus tonight is full of kindness and compassion. God is not driven. God doesn't get tired of those who are tired. He wants his servant to be fully equipped to help them. And the idea in verse 4 is of uh, a word in season, a word in season. As the, the pupil becomes the teacher, he has just the right word at just the right time to help the weary. And Winston Churchill, he was, uh, he's really well known, isn't he, for his um, wartime speeches. 
Um, what lots of people don't know is just the amount of time and care he took on them. We think that he just got up and started speaking. Not at all. He spoke from a full script. And he took lots of time to, pre- to prepare, especially if it was a short speech. And his notes, if you look it up online, they had words crossed out and changed. And he racked his brain to, to find just the right phrases. And the words that God's servant shares have just that kind of feel. I think there can be times in our Christian lives when maybe just one word, maybe just one truth about God is the only thing that enables us to keep going. And maybe life is so difficult that one word is almost all we can handle. And we should know that in those uh, circumstances, God is pleased to give that word. Maybe it's the word hope. Or maybe because we sometimes struggle to believe that God loves us, it's the word adopted. Or maybe because of Uh, regrets or sin, it's the word forgiven. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but names and words will never hurt you. We all know that's nonsense, don't we? Words can be weapons. Words can leave deep scars on us. But the words of God's servant, the words of Jesus... They are wonderful words. They're words that bind up wounds, that heal the brokenhearted. They're words that bless, and they're words that change destinies. So God's servant is a pupil, but unlike Israel, he was not a rebellious pupil. I'm sure we've got nobody in here who's ever been a rebellious pupil. Um, But again and again, the Israelites put their fingers in their ears and walked away from God, didn't they? They doubted. They ignored his commands. And verse 2, if you glance uh, back at that, it makes that really clear. When God called out, no one answered, but not the servant. And he heard God's voice and he came running. He perfectly obeyed God's commands even when it took him on a surprising path, even when it took him on that road less traveled, even when it took him to a cross. Jesus is an obedient pupil. We see that in these verses. We also see, though, verses 6 and 7, that he is a willing sufferer, a willing sufferer. Um, In verses 6 and 7, if you glance down uh, at them, um, God's servant is portrayed as one who embraced shameful suffering. And he doesn't walk away from it. No, he stands and he takes it. He speaks of a future event, but he does so in the past tense. I gave my back and so on. And it's not hard to see a prediction of the cross of Christ here. And these verses, they capture the humiliation that Jesus experienced on our behalf. 
He, his back was struck and his beard was pulled and his dignity was, was gone, wasn't it? And on several occasions in the last um, few years, footballers have hit the headlines for all the wrong reasons after spitting on opponents. And what is the reaction when that happens? It is disgust, isn't it? These people are meant to be role models for our kids, and they're doing that. See, when a person is mocked like that, it is all about power, isn't it? The mocker, the spitter, is saying, I am stronger than you. I am better than you. You are nothing. And Jesus experienced that. Just listen to Mark's account of uh, the events leading up to his crucifixion. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. I think what makes um, verses 6 and 7 so amazing is if we were to look at Isaiah 42 and 49, the other two servant songs. Um, These verses are so amazing because of what Isaiah says about this uh, figure, the servant, in chapter 42 and 49. In chapter 42, he describes the servant, as the one who God chose and delighted in. In Isaiah 49, he says that he will be the light to all the nations. But look at how he's being treated now. Look at the gap between the status he holds and the experience he has. It is huge. And yet there is a a note of hope in these verses. The the servant is not a victim of events. No, the servant is a willing sufferer. Even though he, he experiences disgraceful treatment, he says he has not been disgraced. Verse 7, do you see that? He knows you'll be vindicated. And this enables him to commit to the suffering. In the words of verse 7, he sets his face like flint. Now that little phrase um, referring to flint, that's picked up by Luke in chapter 9 of his uh, gospel. And it's really the turning point in Luke's gospel. And it describes the decision that Jesus makes to go to Jerusalem, to embrace the cross despite all it meant. I think to to see someone um, suffer on our behalf is very humbling, isn't it? To see or hear of a soldier laying down their life 
or a parent making great sacrifices for a child. It's something that we're right to admire. But what makes Christ's attitude to his suffering even more wonderful, even more breathtaking, is that he goes to the cross for us, for people who were his enemies. And all of this will be developed further in the final servant song. In chapter 53, the servant swaps places with us. And he's pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our sins. The punishment that we deserve falls on him. This was the path he chose. He was a willing sufferer. He took the road less traveled. And he calls all of us, all of his disciples to do the same too. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That looks so foolish, doesn't it? But because of Jesus, it's the only way to be wise in God's world. So God keeps us uh, following him. God uh, keeps us doing so by showing us a portrait of Jesus. He shows us him as an obedient pupil. And he shows us Jesus as a willing sufferer. And then in verses 8 and 9, he shows him as a blameless defendant. A blameless defendant. If you glance down at these verses, um, they have a kind of courtroom feel, don't they? The servant is in the dock and he's fighting back against those who say that, that his suffering is deserved. Um, his tone is kind of punchy. He rounds on his accusers. Who, who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Now, as Jesus died, um, many people believed, didn't they, that he deserved just what he was getting. He was a religious threat, guilty of blasphemy. He was a, a political threat with all this talk of a kingdom. He was treated like a criminal. And yet he was innocent. And he didn't look like a man who had God on his side though, did he? And don't you think that so many people must have walked past him and thought, well, I've heard about that guy. It's a shame but I suppose he must have been guilty. And wouldn't they have remembered um, words from God's word, cursed is anyone hung on a tree? You know, to know that you're innocent when other people think that you're guilty, that is an incredibly powerful emotion. From time to time on the news, we hear about um, how new evidence has led a prisoner uh, to be set free for a crime that they didn't commit. Uh, maybe they've been in, in prison for years. And what do they do as they emerge with their, their family and friends all around them as they've been vindicated? They, they cheer, don't they? They lift their hands to celebrate. They thank all the people that believed them. 
all the people that stood beside them. There have been so many wasted years in their life, so many tears, but now they're free. And God's servant, even though he experienced all this terrible suffering, even though Jesus did so for us, he was innocent, innocent. Many people have noticed there's a a kind of similarity between um, verses 8 and 9 and the end of Romans chapter 8. Maybe just keep your eyes on those verses uh, in our passage as I read from Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, God's servant was innocent. And by the end of verse 9, it's clear that his accusers won't have the last word. As a perfect substitute, he has paid the penalty for our sins. But he didn't stay on the cross forever, did he? No, he died, he rose, he ascended to heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God. He was completely and utterly vindicated by God the Father. And nothing will ever be able to separate him from his Father. Now, the same is true for us. To be a Christian is to be united to Jesus by faith. The most common way uh, of describing this in the New Testament is to say that we are in Christ. His death was our death. His resurrection is guaranteed ours. Everything has changed because of him. And so tonight we have an anchor in heaven in Jesus. We can never be torn away from him. We will never be put to shame by him. And God would, we are so close to Jesus, God would have to throw Jesus out of heaven to throw us out of heaven. You see, how do you help a Christian who feels condemned? Many of us do. Many of us have a kind of nagging feeling, I think, that God is kind of unhappy with us. Many of us doubt his love. Many of us lack assurance, don't we? And we know all the charges that the accuser, the devil, brings against us. Maybe we feel a sense of shame tonight. What is the answer? What is the answer? It is to remember that we are united to Christ. Do you know these words? The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. If we are Christians tonight, we belong to that company. We have been sought out by Jesus. 
Our union with him has been sealed with his blood. And nothing can ever separate us from him. And so as our passage closes, our question again, will we trust and rely on our God? The imagery in verses 10 and 11 is powerful, isn't it? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. All you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire. This you have from my hand. God says you will lie down in torment. Better to walk in the dark with God than light my own path. That's what that verse is saying. Better to walk the road less traveled, to trust Jesus over myself. And as John alluded to in his prayer, the world tempts us, doesn't it, to say that walking away from Jesus to to find our true selves would be some kind of great liberation. But Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Jesus says, place your life in my hands this evening. Walk with me. I think we often think that um, walking away from Jesus means some kind of moral catastrophe in our lives. But there is a path away from Jesus that looks very respectable, very reasonable, very religious, a path for people who want to save themselves, a path for people who no longer see their need for Jesus. Is that you tonight? Are you trusting your own efforts, your own devotion, your own evangelism, the things we do for God? Are they the grounds of our confidence before him, or is it Jesus? Are we on his path, the road less traveled, the path for those who stumble, who feel weak, but who are held and kept and led by him? Well, I began um, with a poem, and I'll end with one. It is the Queen's favorite, apparently, during World War II. Um, She gave it to her dad, who read it at the end of his Christmas address. And faced with all the uncertainty and the fear that conflict brought, he felt they were just the right kind of words for people to hear. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. Well, may God help us to do just that, to walk this surprising road, this road less traveled, to fix our eyes on Jesus as we do, to say to him, Lord, be my vision, be my guide today, tomorrow, and forever. Let's pray.